to the Building Bike Podcast, a podcast for construction owners, contractors, and insurance professionals, where you can hear from the experts about key topics to help you be successful. This podcast focuses on building information modeling, insurance, technology, and we do it via the experts. Today, we're in the insurance lane. My name is Peter Duggan. I'm president and CEO of Proactive, and I'm here with two fine gentlemen, my co-host, Mike Dierksen, Proactive Senior Consultant of Innovation and Content Solutions, and our star guest, Jim Budwell, one of the industry's leading subcontractor default insurance experts. Jim is the Director of Subcontractor Default Insurance Risk Management at Construction Risk Partners. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good, Peter. Thanks for having me. Hello, Michael. Oh, Michael, hey, how are you? Doing great. Excited to get going. I know. And Jim, I'm super excited. I think the audience is really going to love hearing from you about the stuff you're bringing today. I mean, you and I have been working together for a while, thinking early, like 1960s, maybe. <laughs> it sure seems like it at times, that's for sure. But there are some people listening who may not be aware of you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, um, how you got to where you are now? Sure thing. Uh, thanks, Peter. So Jim Budwell, I'm with CRP and graduated which seems like a long time ago, from Drexel University with an engineering degree. And from there, went into a claims consultant role from the construction, uh, commercial construction space, and then was able to utilize my background in engineering and construction management with an engineering and construction firm in the Philadelphia area. For 10 years, I did every conceivable role inside that firm, from uh, scheduling and inspection through constructability reviews and project management. Uh, and then in 2007, I joined the dark world of insurance uh, and went to work for Zurich, became a subguard risk engineer. And that was a wonderful opportunity. Instead of uh, you know placing concrete horizontally, it, it then was going vertically. And that, that allowed me to get into the commercial space. Uh, but I didn't know anything about insurance. So a bit of a leap of faith. And it's all turned out, it's all turned out well. Uh, I'm glad I took the chance. And then uh, I guess in 2015, so it's been about six years now, I joined CRP. Uh, so I'm on the broker side. But I think overall, uh, with the carrier perspective, the construction perspective, and now the, the, the brokering uh, perspective, it's a nice skill set. And it allows me to, to take a look at things from a, a lot of different lenses, a lot of different perspectives. So thanks again for having me today, Peter. What a pleasure. And I'll tell you, CRP is lucky to have you. What an advisor to the, the marketplace, right? I mean, having, like you said, scheduling, building, having been on the carrier side, looking at insurance claims, looking at risk management. So I got a question for you. How many uh, subcontractor default insurance claims have you seen in your career? Yeah, so I've never done an exact takeoff, but I would probably <laughs> say about 500 subcontractor defaults at this point. And that varies from complexity, right? Sometimes they're just notice the cure and you get involved and you develop some strategy and they kind of go away. Uh, other times they go all the way through a loss, a claim, reimbursement, subrogation. So kind of kind of seen it all over the years. Man, that is awesome. And I know you brought to us today something CRP developed 
uh, very interesting. We were talking about it the other day, a nine-step program in relation to mitigating subcontractor default risk. And I think the audience is going to eat that up. I know the more I learn about it, the more excited I get about it. But before we go to step one, if I could ask you, having been through 500 subcontractor default insurance claims and having had the experience that you have, what keeps you up at night professionally? So that has changed as my career has evolved. But right now, as I sit here working as a broker consultant for CRP, it's the coverage that contractors pay for that for whatever reason falls through the cracks. Mm. And all the carriers have unique terms and conditions and unique exclusions. And sometimes you think you have it surrounded on all sides. And for whatever reason, whether it's a dollar threshold or a duration threshold or other insurances or or a market sector, those things that could pop up that no one anticipates. And for whatever reason, when you really need the coverage, it turns out that something has lapsed. Mm. So we're constantly working with the carriers to try and identify those and avoid those things from falling through the cracks. But that's probably the one thing that keeps me up the most. Wow. Well, that's, I know you're a conscientious guy. Like I said, you and I have known each other for a while. So your clients are probably in good hands, given that you're the one not sleeping at night <laughs> thinking about that stuff. <laughs> All right. So let's set the stage. I'm a I'm an ENR top 200 contractor. I'm building a high rise in New York City. I've got, let's say, a mechanical subcontractor who's, I don't know, a, li- a little bit wobbly. I'm a little bit nervous. I've got subcontractor default insurance in place. I've never used it before. Can you start me off with step one of this uh, program that you talk about? Well, I think in this context, you know, step step one really is to simply be alert. Just have your eyes and your ears open, right? The front end of any SDI program is really your subcontractor prequalification. Despite having the best prequal around, sometimes things happen. And that could be turnover, that could be succession planning, that could be a death of key resources. So I think the most important thing is for the boots on the ground, the folks that are going to be dealing with the delivery truck drivers, with the, the labor on the field, uh, with admin. It's just everyone to be alert. And if there are some signs that perhaps things aren't as they should be, to maybe start to, uh, to, to pay attention to that spidey sense that's tingling and not just assume that everything's going to be okay. Right. And Jim, you know, especially nowadays, right, it's a bit of a down market you know, there's, there's gotta be some highlighted, some emphasis on these things as well. Right. So is there any significant importance to any one versus the other of the, uh, of these different indicators? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's the unique spot as we sit here in March of 2021, are we in a recession? Are we coming out of a recession? No one is very certain. And I think everyone is being cautious included in that is, is the subcontractors and what tends to happen in times of uncertainty is subs will try and take on more work in an effort to insulate themselves and keep themselves operating. But sometimes that can backfire. They can get overextended. So if you're a GC and you have an SDI program in place, I think you need to be mindful of backlog, work in progress, and how that all works in with what your specific project needs are in terms of schedule. How are they going to be able to manpower the job? 
What type of cash flow are they going to be able to provide? You know, where are those pinch points in terms of, you know, labor costs, material costs, equipment costs? So there's a lot of different things we can look at. Uh, some are leading, some are lagging, but especially now we should really be aware. Jim, I've got I've got my mechanical subcontractor, and I'm noticing I expected to have 30 people on site. I've had a week or two now where I've got 25. Now it's treading down to 20. My spidey senses are up, right? I followed step one. I'm thinking, ooh, this sounds a little scary. What's my next? What's my next step? It's probably it could be one of two things, Peter. It can be to keep the lines of communication open but also a strict adherence to your terms and conditions of your subcontract agreement. If you have the ability to place that subcontractor on notice because they have had short shortages with manpower and you give them 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours, whatever that is in your subcontract agreement to cure that deficiency, then you need to follow that. You need to follow that accordingly. And I'm not advocating that right out of the shoot, you begin a letter writing campaign but maybe start to have the dialogue with the sub and ask him, you know, why, why are their numbers down and what do they plan to do about it? And they're beginning to start to miss some schedule milestones and how are they going to recoup that? And after a day or two, it depends how, you know, if they're on the critical path, of course. So you have to guide how much leeway you want to give when it's informal and verbal before you start that formalized written letter writing campaign. Again, in, in accordance with your terms and conditions. Yep. And Jim, maybe maybe expand on that just a little bit. Like, what are some of the situations that may arise if you don't follow those terms and conditions? You know, is there some situations where maybe it's created a, a different pro- a problem that you weren't foreseeing, or you know, kind of what what's up, ends up happening when you don't go down that path? Yeah, sure. That, that's a good question, Michael. I think the biggest, not to be an alarmist, but the biggest concern is if you have issues on site and they are truly default related issues and you don't notify the sub on time, or you don't not notify the carrier on time, that you might miss your window to report that claim. And God forbid that there's a catastrophic multi-million dollar loss that eventually turns out from this default. You could be in a position where if you miss that reporting window, and again, all the carriers have slightly different windows of, of what their policy speaks to. Uh, so that, that's certainly one area that we want to try to help our clients avoid is to be very cognizant of what their reporting responsibilities are. But yeah, I think the other thing too is, is if you give the sub, and again, I just mentioned this, but I'll talk about it again because it's important. If you give them a three-day window to cure the deficiency, you can't on day two issue them a notice of default or terminate them. You've got to let, you got to let those, those timeframes play out and give them the opportunity to fix the problem. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess that, that ties in Nicely, though, for, with point number three, Jim. So, you know, you got to communicate efficiently and you got to escalate accordingly, right? So could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? What is the proper way to communicate? And, you know, when you say escalate accordingly, who are the right people to escalate to? Yeah, so this is probably one of the bigger takeaways uh, of what we'll talk about today. It's to keep the lines of communication open amongst all parties, so you don't want to keep the subcontractor in a silo or keep them in the dark. You want to have the conversations with them and find out, are there ways to help them, right? Maybe they're getting squeezed on another job and they don't have the resources from a financial standpoint. So, so maybe you start to talk about dual party checks or maybe you start to talk about expedited payments, but you can't get to that point in time without opening up the dialogue with the sub to find out what the issues are. 
Now, on the flip side, it's also important to keep the lines of communication open between the project and your field staff, as well as corporate, you know, your risk managers, you know, the legal team in-house, because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be more familiar with policy language. And if there is an opportunity to bring the broker on board or the carrier on board or other specialized consultants on board, you now have a lot of firepower at your disposal to help you through this potentially messy situation. But again, you can't do that unless you start to talk about it. And it's it can be human nature, right? The project managers tend to be type A, personnel, type a personalities, and they think they can do it all and they can control it all. Sometimes it's best to, to delegate and bring in some, some people who have lived through this before. It's, it's been my experience, you know, Peter and Michael, that Lifelong project managers might only go through one or two subcontractor defaults in a career. So while they're they're vaguely familiar with what to do and how to do it, you know the carriers and the brokers are dealing with it on a daily basis. So, yeah, and let's face it. I mean, we've all we've all we all are in the construction industry, and there's a level of optimism that you have to have to perform well, right? So so to turn that switch and say, uh oh. This one might go bad is not an easy thing for some people to do. But based on what you're telling us, Jim, don't pass by those warning signs because it sounds like you run the risk of even jeopardizing coverage. Yeah. What tends to happen is those things just they don't fix themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Those manpower shortages or the financial issues. The vast majority of times, again, they're they're not going to go away on their own. They're going to need to be monitored. They're going to be need to be mitigated. But you got to identify it first. You got to come up with a plan. And sometimes you got to hold their hands. And sometimes the best uh, solution is to terminate and move on with a replacement subcontractor. But, you know, that's certainly one of the mistakes I think I see. And it definitely falls in line with that optimism that is always abound on a project, right? That can do attitude. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's best just to kind of cut your losses and move on. Love it. Love it. Okay. So I've read my T's and C's. Right. I understand that I've got to give three days to cure. As you said, I've now escalated it inside my organization. I've talked to risk management. Maybe I've talked to financial. So I've done all those things. What's my fourth step in the process? And now at that point, you've engaged with your broker. You've engaged with your the carrier. You've ensured that you've reserved your rights. Now you got to deal with the issue at hand. And that, that means... Are you able to keep a lid on that pot or not? And to discuss strategy. And sometimes that could be a whole host of different scenarios, but it might be uh, T&M contracts to keep things going for rework while you're looking at lump sum for replacement sub. But it's that engagement of all the parties and you develop this think tank. You get some people who've lived through this before and can offer some guidance, can have some real candid, real frank conversations about what the sub's capabilities might be. But again, you can't do that without getting to those steps. And and again, following that process and escalating accordingly. Uh, But but I think that next step that you're referring to really is the development of the plan. What's what's the the strategic plan to push forward and get the job to the finish line? Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, maybe supplementing so now I'm going to decide, am I going to supplement my mechanical subcontractor or am I going to terminate and replace? Uh, what have you seen in that regard? So I think the vast majority of instances involve termination. 
that's not all. That's not always the case. Most of the carrier language, the coverage tr is triggered by default. So if it's in the best interest of the project and the owner and the GC to keep that sub on board and drag him to the finish line while supplementing with another replacement, then you, you don't need to terminate. But it's always going to be a case by case basis. You know, sometimes by doing that type of scenario, you're, you're ultimately doing more harm than good. You know, you're slowing down the project. Uh, that's one of the benefits of SDI, right, is that you can control that, that path forward. And even if that means that there's a premium involved, right, because time is money. And, and I think everybody makes more money going forward than they do going backward. Yeah. So the, the quicker you can, you can come up with that, that, that lock solid path forward, the better it's going to be for all, all parties. Yeah, Jim, you know, expanding on that just a little bit, when we last spoke, you had mentioned also uh, when it comes to terminating versus supplementing, you know, sometimes you have to have the right person to terminate. So could you expand on that a little bit too? I mean, when you, you're escalating, you've gone through these steps, you're determining which, which course of action to take, but are there sometimes issues with, you know, who has the authority to terminate? Yeah, so that, that's, that's another good point. What we're really talking about here is levels of authority. You know, each organization is going to be different. And some organizations give that authority to default and to terminate at the project level. And others, it's, it's much more restrictive to somebody more in a senior level uh, uh, managerial role. So by having that dialogue, you prevent that rogue project or rogue project manager from sending that email that might actually qualify as some type of formal default notification that could then hurt, you know, in hindsight. So again, that, that's really a means of following what your organization is supposed to do and, and following the, the, the appropriate levels of authority. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, so now we've had this conversation, right? We've determined supplementing versus terminating. Uh, we've come up with a course of action. What's the next step in the process? So I think this one is, is most difficult for a lot of project managers. You want to go, go, go. And you got a problem and you want to fix it and you want to move forward as fast as you can. But at this point, it's, it's best to actually pause and to take a deep breath and to get an accounting of where the project is, as well as where the project is in relation to that subcontractor scope of work. So what I'm talking about here is to do a deep dive on the accounting of that defaulted subcontractor and drill down on their lower tier suppliers and their vendors. Are they, are they made whole? Are they current with their payments? In addition to materials on the job, right? Are, are things paid for? Is the material there or is it in some warehouse or is it overseas? But they get a real good understanding of what the available subcontract balance is, what the work that was currently put in place, does it conform? And then ultimately the remaining work, right? The remaining scope of work. Because at that point, if you're going to start to engage replacement subcontractors, You've got to start to procure them and they have to have a real good understanding of what work they're buying, right? Are they going to now warrant the work that was put in place by the, by, by the defaulted sub? Because what happens then is they'll come through the job with, with a white glove and they're going to identify everything that's not conforming and they're going to want to get paid for that. So this is, this is where it, it really helps everyone to take that pause, get a real good inventory of where the job is, where the status of the contract is with the subcontractor and then decide how to how best to move forward. And Jim, I have a question for you on that. So in relation to 
defining this plan and documenting the site conditions, do the policies, and I think I know the answer to this question, do the policies allow typically for added advisors to come into the project? So let's say I want to take an audit of my schedule and I want to make sure that my schedule is accurately portraying what's occurring. Do the policies allow me to go out and, and get a scheduler to put a second set of eyes on my schedule? Yeah, so that, that's a very good question, Peter. And, and the short answer is yes. Most of the policies typically afford coverage for that. The argument is you would not have had to bring in a schedule consultant, but for the default of that subcontractor. So, and at that point, that, that's, a, that's a really good opportunity to get an idea of what the schedule is, what the impact of the default sub is, and then also what the impacts going forward are going to be. You're most likely going to have to re-procure the replacement sub. They might not be able to be on site tomorrow. They might be a week away. There might be material, specialized material that you then have to get into someone's production staff or fabricate or fabrication schedule and get that material slotted to get to your site. So there's going to be some delays and those types of scheduling consultants can help with that process. Another, for instance, would be if you had an issue with uh, you know, the skin of the building, you might then go and get a, a, an envelope consultant to come on board and see, is this, is this truly 100% solely attributable to the defaulted sub and their scope of work? Or is there some other subs that are involved, you know, the framers or drywallers or something on the inside, right? So, yeah, the, the, and that, but that's one of the things that the field staff typically is not going to be aware of. Risk management will be aware of it. Your broker partner is going to be aware of it. Your carriers are going to be aware of it. And you can only benefit from those types of, again, that, that expertise and that think tank if you bubble up that dialogue, open those lines of communication, and kind of bring in some more, uh, some more support to help you out. Love it. And when we talked last, uh, you mentioned, so step seven is now I've brought in some consultants. Now I'm starting to incur costs related to this default. You recommend setting up a cost code. Tell us more about that. So as soon as you have an issue with a sub, in a perfect world, it's even pre-default, maybe even pre-notice to cure, but you're starting to have an issue and you suspect you're heading down this path, it wouldn't be a bad idea to set up a separate code inside the accounting system for the project so that you can track or your staff can track their time and expense relative to this issue with that subcontractor. Most of the coverages out there for SDI will reimburse you for time expended, for re-procurement, things of that nature, but you've got to be able to contemporaneously prove it during the proof of loss and the claim submission process. So if six months ago, you started to incur additional time, which also would be an additional cost, but you didn't document it adequately, and then you try and recoup those costs later on, the carriers likely will say no because you couldn't prove it. So it's important to at least set up a cost code, try and document your time, try and document your expense, a brief description of what you were doing for that half hour or four hours or whatever it was, and how it relates to the defaulted subscope of work. And that's the kind of stuff as an advisor who's been through 500 of these, you know, off the top of your head, as you mentioned, some of the, some of the builders out there, they may only deal with it once or twice in their entire career. So having access to this plan and someone like you to really kind of guide them through these little nuances can really help on the back end, I would imagine. 
It can, and that's part of our role is to maximize the coverage opportunities, right? So what we try to encourage is, while this might seem like it's a burden and it's one more thing to do in a, in a very long day where you're already dealing with fires all over the place, it's best to, to have it and not need it, right? Then, then, then need it and not have it later on. So we always encourage them to try and document their time, whether it's a timesheet, a time log, some type of daily journal that kind of identifies that, that you can then share with the, the carrier if need be later on. So yeah, that those are all things that, you know, you just, you can't do later on. So you need to do it in real time. And, and again, it's important. And these are the types of things that you have in an initial call. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's via text or, 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 or it's just an email or, or whatever the case may be, it depends on the relationship. But the sooner that we can get involved, the sooner we can encourage that the, the clients to kind of protect themselves and, and again, maximize their opportunities around this default. Yeah. And really, Jim, one of the things I've liked about working with you on numerous occasions when we're coming in from the carrier side is you you give us the opportunity to do a little pre-read. Like, hey, before I'm submitting the formal submission, while I'm still working on the job, how about you do a pre-read of my schedule uh, or my client schedule, your client schedule? Or how about if you do a pre-read of some of these timesheets to make sure there's not going to be hassle on the back end. And that that collaborative nature that you bring to it, I think really helps all parties achieve a positive outcome. Yeah, no, you're right, Peter. And we've worked successfully in the past with, with instances like that where we've we've been able to, I mean, one of the bigger success stories was when we actually were able to verify a lot of indirect costs in advance of the direct costs because we were engaged with the carrier, we were engaged with the contractor, we're able to, to kind of foster this level of, of transparency and collaboration. The schedules, the, the baseline, and all the contemporaneous updates were, were shared and were reviewed. And before we were able to really erode the available subcontract balance and be in an upside-down position to get reimbursement for direct costs, everyone was on the same page that there were X amount of delays solely attributable to that defaulted sub. So you know, collaboration is certainly a big thing, but again, it's that open lines of communication that, that we really need to try and foster, you know, every at every turn. Love it. So let's touch on step eight before we get to the speed round coming up soon. Uh, step eight, you say, is making sure to define the mitigation plan so you can show your carrier, hey, we did our best to mitigate this loss. Tell us more about that. Yeah, and that's one of the, uh, the contractors have the policy, the SDI policy, but they're partners with their carriers. And, and part of the partnership is to not treat this as an open checkbook type of approach. You try to mitigate costs where possible. And in the instance where there's no other way out but to incur a significant premium for replacement costs, that's the conversation that we then have with the carrier and explain why. And they've all been very supportive over the years. So what we try to do, though, is in, term, in determining a risk mitigation plan or default mitigation plan is what's the next steps? What's the strategy going forward? You know, if, if you've got your pick of a couple of different replacement subs and one is on a T&M basis and the other is on a lump sum basis, you know, try to try to analyze that. So everyone is in an agreement about the path forward. And and then, then you eliminate the ability to, to, to second guess later on. I love it. All right, let's touch on the last step, uh, step nine, and it relates to that collaboration 
that uh, the folks at CRP recommend. Tell us about uh, what you recommend now that I've got my mitigation plan in place. I got my cost code set up. I've documented my site conditions. What do you recommend as step nine? At this point, it's just an adherence to the game plan and keeping the lines of communication open, right? Nobody likes surprises. And if all of a sudden you've started to march through the weeks and you're finishing up the scope of work and there is defective work that's identified and there's going to be a significant cost for that, and we need to keep the carriers aware of that. All of a sudden their reserves that they may have set at one level are not going to be adequate enough. And you're going to want to submit your proof of loss and you're going to want to get paid inside of 30 days and they might not have the funds there to do it. So again, it's a matter of keeping everybody rowing in the same direction, keeping the lines of communication open so that there are no surprises. Because at the end of the day, SDI is most beneficial to the contractor because it allows him to get to the finish line, in theory, uh, with a higher probability of being on time and on budget, knowing that they can seek reimbursement after the fact. So that communication and collaboration, that's not an event. That's a process all the way through. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I, I think, you know, a couple of the takeaways, right, would be, I think, is where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Mm-hmm. Don't let the issue turn into a fire. Identify what's going on, be aware, be alert, and then escalate it accordingly, right? That's one of the issues. Step two is, you know, ask for help. Bring in the additional resources in, in terms of that think tank that we talked about, right? Put some good heads together. You'll come up with a solution. And third, and, and like you just pointed out, it's a continuous thing here is the communication has to stay open because uh, you have the notice to cure, you default, maybe you terminate, you complete the scope. There might be subrogation opportunities. This can be a long process where you're engaged with the carrier over, over years. So it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that everybody's kind of in lockstep with each other. Hmm. Jim, that is absolutely fabulous stuff. I, we work with a lot of, uh, of the top builders in the country and in the world and hearing, having this tool to share with them, that guidance, uh, I think is going to be fabulous. So thank you for not only the nine steps, but you gave us three takeaways there at the tail end. So a lot of good nuggets here. Yeah, Jim. And, you know, I, I think like, like Peter said, great, great stuff. And Hopefully you're ready. We've got some some rapid fire questions for you. So I guess first and foremost, hey, what are the biggest trends you're seeing right now? You know, what is the new and exciting thing in the SDI space? Not to be negative, but one of the trends that we're seeing in terms of claims and defaults, it's centered around manpower and it's centered around the schedule. You know, maybe five or 10 years ago, it was centered around, you know, insolvency of subcontractors. But I think as the SDI book and the clientele that have SDI programs in place have expanded their internal prequal programs, they've gotten very good at doing financial analysis. So they're avoiding some of those financial pitfalls. But as everyone gotten, has gotten very busy over the past few years, it's the uh, overextension of subcontractors that seems to be popping up more and more frequently. And it's that inability to man, you know, project one versus project two versus project three. And what maybe you get the A team on job one and now the B team shows up and then maybe the C team shows up. So it's that it's that balance. So that's probably one of the trends we're seeing in terms of a, a claim notification standpoint. It's you know uh, an analysis on backlog and an analysis on WIP 
can really go a long way. Yeah, Jim, one of the trends we're seeing, of course, is a lot of new carriers coming into the marketplace, right? And I know you work with just about all, if not all of them. What kind of struggles are you seeing with the new carriers coming into the market? Yeah, so I think the new carriers have been have been a really good thing for the marketplace in general, right? It's increased competition, so you're getting some differing spins on terms and conditions. You're getting, I think, some increased flexibility and customization. So if I'm a contractor, right, it's a really good time to buy SDI. From a carrier perspective, I think there's just a learning curve. You know, some of the newer carriers who don't have a whole lot of claims history just yet, right, they've got to live through that. And there's some growing pains. You know, who's going to process the claims? Who's going to review the claims? Are they going to do it in-house? Are they going to use a third-party administrator? You know, how do they pay for the claims? Who authorized payment? What if there's a, a catastrophic large claim early on in that new carrier's cycle, right, where they don't have the funds necessarily built up just yet, right? Where, where does that money come from? So those are some of the things I think some of the newer carriers are, are, are playing with. But there's a lot of smart people that are running a lot of these carriers. And I think they've got a real good game plan. But nonetheless, I think that's just one of the things I've seen is that, you know, some of the, uh, some of the learning curve has been a little steep on, on the initial claims process. But at this point, I think everybody's been at it. We don't really have any new entrance into the marketplace over the last 18 months. It's, it's stabilized. And I, I think it's, uh, again, it's, it's really advantageous to the contractor right now because you have a lot of options. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. I got one and then Mike's got one as well. I'm going to go with what makes you, Jim, feel most rewarded at work? So I think it's it's really simple. For me, it's when I'm when I feel like I'm being used as a trusted advisor. When I get that phone call or that email or that text message that says, help, we've got an issue. We want to pick your brain. And then I have the opportunity to 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 help that to help out. Right. It's it's that it's that ability to help. And to be viewed as a resource, that's something I, I really appreciate being. I, I like that consultative approach. And over time, you build the relationships. And some of our clients, you know, use me and CRP and our coworkers like that. That's something that, that's really special. And I really appreciate that. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. And Jim, so, you know, you're such a knowledgeable guy. Clearly, you've demonstrated that over the course of this podcast. What might be something that our guests, our listeners might be surprised to hear about you? You know, is there, is there some, some hidden talent? Is there something, some uh, new and exciting with Jim Budwell? There's not much new, but not everybody knows. I'm a song and dance man. I will perform okay. for the best of them. <laughs> that sounds like podcast episode two with Jim Budwell, <laughs> where you will sing and dance. So right. we That's going to do, straight to YouTube. <laughs> we might have to do that. Peter, we might have to do that one after hours though, okay? <laughs> That'll be the karaoke edition of the podcast, you know? See, Perfect. We'll get, we'll get the bouncing ball to go with it. You know, sing along with Jim. Very good. We could do a little ZZ Top if you want. Hey, love that. See, I've known Jim for over 10 years, and I did not know this. So this is a great nugget. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jim, you might have noticed. So it's the building bite, bite standing for BIM Insurance Technology with the experts. So I know you're a Philly guy. You know, we like to ask what are you taking a bite out of, right? If, you know, again, Philly cheesesteaks is what everyone's going to think of. What's your go-to? Yeah, well, it's got to be Jim's down South Street. That's one of my favorite ones to go to. Steve's Prince of Steaks is another good one. And uh, all this talk, I I think I got to wrap this up and go get myself a a whiz wit. That's for sure. (laughs) 
There you go. There you go. For, for those who don't know, it's, it's a very nerve wracking experience. You go into gyms, you get ready and uh, they, they look at you. What do you want? And you got to have the order, right? You, you can't, can't falter because then they'll know. Oh, they, they don't know. You know, so whiz, whiz. What, what is the whiz? The whiz is for cheese whiz and the, and the wit, W-I-T, is with onions, with fried onions. There you go. There you go. Good for the guy from Massachusetts to know that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jim, thanks so much for chatting with us today. If the listeners want to hook up with you, they want to chat with you, where do they find you? Yeah, well, by all means, I think uh, they could find me at LinkedIn. If they're a mutual colleague of yours, by all means, Peter, share my contact information. Uh, but I'm at Construction Risk Partners, and I'm just outside of the Philadelphia area in King of Prussia. So we go where the clients go. And uh, at some point soon, we'll, we'll be back to being on planes, trains, and automobiles, and we'll see you everywhere. Oh, man. Well, sticking with the uh, food analogy, that's a wrap, Jim. Thanks a lot. Peter, Michael, thank you. This was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Building Bite. This podcast has been brought to you by Proactive. Check us out on thebuildingbite.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media for all future The Building Byte news and updates. You can also find us on your favorite apps, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Amazon. If you have ideas for episode topics that we should cover on the show, or you know somebody who would be a perfect guest, let us know at connect at thebuildingbyte.com.